name is Josh. It's good to be with you here. Um, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and uh, turn to Matthew 10. We'll dip into Matthew 9 a tiny bit, but I feel like I deserve a sticker or something because we're going through 19 verses today. That's like way, it's like four times as much as we normally go through. But uh, so yeah, we're going to make some progress after what, six months and two chapters or something like that? And as we've been going through Matthew, uh, we've been looking at what it means to, to be a Christian or what it means to identify with God's people, uh, the, where it, it looks like believing in Jesus like the way we believe in food. You know, we eat to continue to live and we wake up and structure our days around our meals. You know, to be a Christian means we wake up every day and follow Jesus and we structure our lives around what he said and what he did and what he calls us to and what he calls us away from. And, and if, you're, if you're visiting with us and you're, you're still trying to wrestle with where you stand with Jesus, uh, you know, maybe you've been hurt by church in the past. I feel like in our, in our city, a few people have you know, made, it, made it out of church un, unscathed. And, or maybe you see people claiming to be Christians that just seem to be you know, living really incongruous lives with Jesus. Uh, I think it's because in a lot of ways, our culture, we've separated uh, this idea of being a Christian from Jesus or actually following, following his way of life. And uh, but we see that it is a way of life. Uh, Matthew is showing us this pattern in the last few chapters where after the Sermon on the Mount, where he gives three, three chapters, five, six, and seven uh, are chapters of teaching. He comes down off the mountain with his disciples. And then chapters eight and nine are Jesus doing incredible things, working all these miracles and calling people to follow him. And now we get into chapter 10, where he's going to start sending out his disciples. Like we talked about how being a disciple is way more like an apprenticeship than it is like going to Bible college. And so we see that in action here after getting some teaching, getting some practice and observation. Now they're being sent out with power and authority uh, to, as Jesus's apprentices. So we're going to dive into this teaching where Jesus is uh, communicating uh, some details about his mission, like what, how he sends his followers out. And so we're just kind of framing it around the questions of Jesus's mission, uh, who is sent who, where, how, and what? Who is sent on Jesus' mission? Where are they sent? How are they sent? And what are they supposed to do uh, as, as they go on mission? So that's kind of our outline today. But before we jump into that, I want to hit just two disclaimers uh, before, we look at, before we look at the instructions. Look at verse 36 of chapter 9, which is just a couple inches above chapter 10. This is 1510 in the Pew Bible. It says, when he, Jesus, saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Right before Jesus gives these instructions and sends out his disciples, he's, he's portrayed as a tender, compassionate shepherd. He looks at lost people, hurting people, broken people, unbelieving people, with, with, not with disdain or judgment, but with tender compassion and sympathy over their state. And so if you're here today, this is the disclaimer, if you're here today and you feel that, that harassed and helpless idea, you feel overwhelmed by life and, you know, and the thought of being sent out by Jesus to do more stuff uh, sounds like death to you, then I'd invite you to consider the degree to which you've uh, allowed Jesus to be your compassionate shepherd, the degree to which you've allowed him to move towards you with his easy yoke, offering uh, freedom from guilt and shame, freedom from fear of other people, freedom from uh, all the things that keep us afraid and overcommitted and a slave to people's opinions of us. Because any talk of being sent out as Jesus' apprentices, any talk of like going and being on mission has to be framed first and foremost 
uh, around the, the idea that Jesus loves us deeply and died for us and is pleased with us and moved towards us and his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Uh, we have to have some taste of the good news that we want to proclaim to other people. Otherwise, we're just like anxious religious people, you know, trying to convince other people that they should be anxious and religious as well, which is, that's a tough pitch to make. Uh, so, um, if you, uh, the, if that's you, then, you know, there's, there's freedom to acknowledge that. Like, there's freedom to say, like, yeah, I feel really harassed and helpless. This, like, authority or receiving power from on high or this, like, mission stuff. Like, I hate that stuff. Like, I, that just kind of stresses me out. Like, there's freedom to say, Jesus, I need you to shepherd me. Like, Jesus, the system of my life just doesn't seem to calculate right when I look at what you call me to do. So will you, will you shepherd me? A second disclaimer is for maybe a different kind of person. Uh, look at verse 35, the verse right before it. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. This would be to any of us who feel like we, we have our lives and our system kind of down pat. Like, we, we, we like how our, our life is operating. And it would, it would ask us the question, uh, does your system move you towards other people in love? Like, does the system of your life move you towards people the way Jesus moved towards people, the way Jesus moved towards you uh, in love in your brokenness? To be a Christian or to follow Jesus means we, we grow to care less and less about ourselves and our little world and our kingdom and more and more about God's kingdom and the people that God loves. And so, you know, as we consider these instructions, I'd invite you, this is the disclaimer, to consider uh, to, to what degree is Jesus your Lord or your homeboy? Like, is to what degree is Jesus your Lord or like a TED Talk channel you get pickups, pick-me-ups from, you know, when your system is, is uh, shaky or whatever? Because Jesus calls us to move towards people in joy. Like, for the joy set before Jesus, he endured the cross for other people, for, for love. Uh, he, didn't, he didn't come so that we can have more control over our life necessarily. And so just consider, do kind of like an emotion check as we look at Jesus' mission. You know, what is your, how does your heart respond? Okay, so let's uh, start answering some of our questions, starting with who. Look with me at chapter 9, verse 37. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. He called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who's called Peter, his brother Andrew, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These 12 Jesus sent out. We'll stop there, the first part of five. So the answer to our first question, who did Jesus send out? All of his disciples, all 12 of his crew, he sent all of them out. To be, uh, he prayerfully called these, we see in the other gospels, he went up on a mountain by himself for an, all night and prayed, and then he came down and called these 12 disciples. So we see all of them being called. To be a disciple of Jesus means to be sent. And looking at this list here, these names, if you've been around church for a while, you know, some of them are more, you know, recognizable than others. We have Peter, who's just hilarious and awesome and kind of all of us in some way. He's just like blurting things out and saying the wrong thing and being, you know, called the rock the church will be built on and then being called the devil the next paragraph and wrote the Bible. John, uh, the apostle John, 
you know, if like I had to pick somebody besides Jesus in scripture I wanted to be like, it would be him. Like that dude just like loves people and writes these beautiful books capturing like the glory of Christ and the love of his church and, and all that stuff. And then we have James, the son of Alphaeus, who other than showing up in all four gospel lists of disciples, like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all mention him, uh, he doesn't say anything or do anything that, 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 we, that we know about. And I think there's a beautiful truth for us in this reality that all these guys were sent uh, and that our being sent is not contingent on our giftings or our power or our ability or the results that we're going to get. Like they were all sent because of Jesus. The mission of God, uh, it, it, we are sent on the mission of God by grace because of Jesus, not because of us, not because of anything that is in us. If you're a follower of Jesus, this is great news. That means we have a role to play if you're a follower of Jesus. You belong on mission with Jesus. Your life matters. Your days matter. Your work matters. Your relationship matters to the king of the universe for his mission. And we can also notice that all the disciples were sent. Because sometimes, you know, we can use this list and be like, well, I'm just a Bartholomew, you know. Like, I'm going to go mow the lawn and play golf, you know. Like, I, I'm, I'm not a Peter who, like, did stuff, you know. I'm just like a a Thaddeus who just kind of, you know, hung out or whatever. Uh, because I just want to run through the list of disciples and see that, according to church history and then a, a few passages in Scripture, how their lives ended up. All of them uh, suffered greatly for the mission. Peter was crucified upside down at the hands of Nero, the Roman emperor. Andrew, kind of one of those quiet guys, uh, was ministering in uh, Turkey and Greece and was crucified as well. Uh, Thomas was pierced through with spears of four soldiers, and he was on mission in Syria. Uh, Philip, another quiet guy, he was doing ministry in Asia Minor, and he converted the wife of a rich, powerful person uh, who was mad that his wife became a Christian and killed Philip uh, cruelly. Matthew was stabbed to death in Ethiopia. Bartholomew uh, was also martyred uh, doing widespread missionary travels. James, the son of Alphaeus, a quiet little guy, was stoned to death. Or stoned and then clubbed to death. So I don't. It's a bad day. I don't know what's going on there. It's like a double, a double whammy. Simon the Zealot was in Persia and he was killed after refusing to sacrifice to the sun god. So that sounds fascinating. I would love to know more about that story. Matthias, who's the dude who replaced Judas, the guy who betrayed him, uh, even though he's not in the Gospels, he came in the picture in Acts. Uh, he went with Andrew to Syria and he was burnt at the stake. He was burnt to death. And the Apostle John, he's the only one uh, that gen is generally thought to actually make it to, to old age. Uh, but it doesn't mean he had a cushy life because he was uh, exiled on a prison island for a long time. And uh, hi history says that he was cast into boiling oil by the Romans and uh, escaped somehow, like survived somehow. So we can look at even the not famous disciples, even the people who didn't write books of the Bible and see that like something mattered to them. Like they... That when Jesus says, like, lose your life and you will find it, or take up your cross and follow me, a lot of them, that was literal. Some, you know, sometimes the methods were different. Um, but scripture, especially the books of, book of Acts, makes it super clear that the way of Jesus is the way of the cross, that following Jesus means that we are willing to joyfully in, uh, give up our lives for, for others, because that's what Jesus did for us. It doesn't mean we need to all go find someone to you know, stab us or something like that. Like, praise God, we're in this time and place where, uh, you know, there's not a lot of risk of us being thrown into boiling oil. Um, but what would it look like to sacrifice, like, 
experience like limits or even pain for the sake of loving others. Like maybe it's, you know, your preference for privacy and kind of your, your solitude. And so it means like inviting people into your home or eating lunch with coworkers instead of doing your own thing. And, or maybe, you know, and this sounds crazy in our day and age, but remember boiling oil and stabbed to death. Like maybe it means like selling cars or downsizing or, you know, working less, simplifying your life so that you have more margin, more space to be with people. All of Jesus's disciples are sent. They are all called to do what Jesus did, which is to lose their, lose their life so that they might, they might find it. Next question, where were they sent? Look at verses, the rest of uh, verse 5 and 6. These 12 Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. This was a really cool thing to study this week, uh, that Jesus' mission as he came you know, from God, it, it had these like different phases and limits that you see kind of uh, evolve and expand throughout the Gospels, especially the Gospel of Matthew. For this specific missionary journey, uh, where Jesus is sending them out, uh, he gave them a target mission field, a, a specific people. Don't go to the Gentiles or Samaritans, go to the Jewish people, go to Israel. And then we see Jesus' mission expand throughout the Gospel of Matthew, where he interacts with the Syrophoenician woman in chapter 14, I think it is, all the way to the end, when he gives us the Great Commission, which is what? Go to all nations, Every, every tribe, tongue, and nation go to the ends of the earth and baptize them and teach them to obey and make disciples. But for now, Jesus says, target these people. And I think there's so much wisdom and freedom for us in this as we consider mission in our own lives that we can think through who our, who our target people group is. Like, you're not called to be God, you know, omnipresent, you know, everywhere all the time. Uh, the first Thing I think should come to our mind in the context of this passage when we think about our target field is who are the harassed and helpless people that you interact with regularly throughout the week? Maybe it's a coworker with marriage problems or a wild teenager. Maybe it's the, the bedraggled mom you see at story time at the library. Uh, just who is it? That would be the first step of targeting. And, you know, just think maybe spend some time in prayer. Like who, who might be my, my target mission field? That would be like on an individual level. We're actually going to talk about this in our family meeting of kind of having like a target list, people that were a very short list that we're praying for and pursuing. And then on a church family level, this is something that like I dream about at night. There's a, a church that I know of who picks, uh, has all their small groups pick a target mission field. So like a group of 10 to 15 people, they'll pick like one target mission field that that group together kind of locks arms to be the presence of Christ too. And so like, like one example would be like the high school football team where like the coaches, the players, the players' parents, like that's their field, that's their mission field for these 10, 12 people. And so, you know, they work together and think of, think of all the like practical stuff that would take, like, you know, the, to get someone from their group at every practice and every game, give kids rides home, host team meals, set up for their end of the year banquet, just to like be the presence of Christ. Think how like nonsensical it is. Like, why are you guys doing this? You know, exactly. It's like, because Jesus served us, we're like, we're serving you. And they can just be present to this target field. And uh, I fantasize about like our, our church, by the grace of God, growing and having all these different connecting groups that have these different target groups. And think of all the, the possibilities. Like we could have a, a small group that targets the Islamic Center of Big Rapids. You know, we have one of those over by the public safety building. You know, we just be the presence of Christ uh, to the Muslims that like for some reason live in Big Rapids. I don't know. 
but welcome. Uh, or, you know, we could, we could pick, you know, all the schools could have a group that's seeking to love them, or the jail, or the, the homeless shelter, or uh, DHS and the foster care system. We could just have 10 or 15 people, you know, focused on just loving those people generously, without strings attached, without, you know, like, you know, a scalp quota they got to get for, you know, conversions every quarter or something, just to be the presence of Christ. There are endless options, but I think the wisdom and the freedom of target mission fields is that we can pick one and just settle in and do it, you know? Like, you walk past Gentile towns for, you know, this season to the, your target mission field, and no guilt, no shame, you know? Like, I'm on mission, for, and this is where I feel led. Uh, you don't have to feel guilty about the other fields out there, and I just want to invite you to join me in praying about, uh, you know, our church is obviously a little cozy now. Uh, we have one connecting group, uh, but I've been praying about uh, making a ho- uh, the homeless shelter, our brother's keeper, kind of like our target mission field for a season. And it's not, I don't want this to be like something that I'm like, I decide and everybody like shrugs and comes along. So join me in praying about this because one, they have a lot of needs over there. And two, the needs are very relational. Like it's spending time with that harassed and helpless people that are that are over there, like actually sitting and hanging out with them and talking, like that's what they need people to do. Um, and as far as I can tell in the history of this church, which is, is pretty long, uh, there's, there's not a long track record of being really present and available to the needs in our community. Uh, and so you know, what, what might God do through us just showing up, picking, you know, yeah, there's a bazillion fields, like what if we picked one, maybe our brother's keeper, and just tried to champion that for you know, the next 12 months or whatever. So I invite you to join me in praying about that. The next question is, how? How are they to go on Jesus' mission? Look at verse 9 and 10. Do not take along any gold or silver or copper in your belts. Take no bag for the journey or extra tunic or sandals or staff, for the worker is worth his keep. So the answer to this question, how are Jesus' apprentices called to go, uh, is they're there to go simply and trusting God. They, they go in simplicity, and they go trusting God. When it comes to mission or evangelism, you know, sometimes we can psych ourselves out, you know, because we're not prepared enough, or, you know, we need more security or more training or, or, or whatever, and Jesus says, just don't get bogged down with the practicalities. Just go. Go like you're sent like the, by the Lord of the harvest. Go like the God of the universe as your Father knows what you need before you even ask him. I know we love our stuff here in, in America, so here's me being culturally relevant. And by pointing out that Jesus doesn't say, get rid of your stuff, at least not in this passage. He's, he says, just don't take it. What he's saying is, don't depend on your stuff. Or don't let your stuff get in the way of the mission. Don't let your money or comfort take away from the simplicity of the gospel message. The longer I'm a, I'm, I'm a pastor, the more uh, Jesus' words in uh, the parable of the sower just pierce me straight through. There's a, a, a parable of a sower throwing the seeds of the kingdom. And there's one soil in particular that's just really been haunting me. It's the seed that lands in the weedy ground. And the weeds grow up, and it says it chokes it out. So it sprouts, like it's got a little bit of life somehow, but then the weeds choke it out, and, it, and it's not fruitful. And Jesus explains to his disciples that in that parable, the weeds are the cares of this life and the deceitfulness of riches. It's not, you know, meth or egregious sexual behavior or whatever, though, you know, those things are bad. We should talk about that. Uh, 
it's just the stuff. It's just the money and the stuff and the, just the things of this life. And I know this is a sensitive area. We're not drawing any like hard lines in, in the sand or something. But I would just give you some questions to consider. Does my stuff, does the way I handle my money help me love others? Help me be available to others the way Jesus was? Or is it a distraction that keeps me kind of isolated and anxious and working too much to keep up with all my stuff? Or another way to say it was, we could be, does my stuff, do I own my stuff and use it for what is most important to me? Or does my stuff own me and use me? And I, I think that's a helpful question because it's nuanced. Like we can have stuff. Like if you literally had nothing but the clothes on your back, it'd be kind of, it could be kind of hard to be on mission. If we're talking practically. But just like is our stuff something that we own, that we have boundaries, and it's helpful to the mission? Does it help, help me for what's the most important to me? Or does it kind of in turn own me? Questions to pray about. The last thing, the last question is what? What are the disciples supposed to do on Jesus' mission? There are three things. Look with me first at verse 7. As you go, preach this message. The kingdom of heaven is near. Jesus says to go to people, and as you go, preach. They're moving towards people. They're preaching and proclaiming, and it's really neat. The word that Jesus is, the verb that he uses here for preach is, uh, is like being a royal herald. It's like being a, it's heralding this message. He calls his disciples to be heralds of the king. And he uses the language, as you go, which is the same language uh, when you look at uh, the, the details that, that Jesus used in the Great Commission. As you go, make disciples of all nations. If you want to know how the sausage is made, that's an adverbial participle. It has this like progressive, like ongoing action that's like a state of being, like just as you're being a human in the world, proclaim this message. Jesus saying is that being a herald isn't like a program you sign up for on the third Saturday from noon to two or something, but it's this like, it's, it's an all of life kind of, kind of deal. And then look, what does he tell them to preach? This is fascinating. Back to verse seven. As you go preach this message, the kingdom of heaven is near. I try to hold myself back on this one because I have lots of feels about this, these instructions from Jesus. Let's flip over a couple pages to uh, Matthew 3. I'm going to look at the prequel, as it were. Matthew 3, 1499 in the Pew Bible. It says, in those days, uh, verse, I'm sorry, verses 1 and 2. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. One page, flip over to the right, Matthew 4, verse 17. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And then back to chapter 10, he's giving the disciples the exact same commands. We see a little bit of the apprenticeship dynamic where Jesus is saying, hey, do what I do. You know, like it, this is my message and I'm giving it on to you to preach. But what does it mean to preach the kingdom? To herald the truth that the kingdom of heaven is near. It's a big topic in we're actually going to take all of the sermon next week to, to unpack that, so come back for that. Tell your friends. Um, but this, this idea of the kingdom is, is something that I've, been, uh, I've really been wrestling with because I feel like 
in our particular brand of Christianity, these instructions of Jesus are kind of confusing. Like they're almost nonsensical. Like I think if Jesus were like an outreach pastor at a Baptist church, the senior pastor would be like, hey, bro, what are you doing? Like, like I think he would be fired. Like there's no, there's no mention of forgiveness of sins or, or getting into heaven or blood and redemption or the cross. Like, and and the, all those things are very crucial. There's just like lots of questions, like I said, which is why we're going to take the whole sermon to look at it next week. So here's an intro. What is the kingdom of heaven? Why is that good news? The kingdom of heaven, you could, you could translate it, life with God under the rule of God. Life with God under the rule of God. This, my friends, is the best news. I would even say it's, it's better news than the fact that Jesus died for our sins. Why would we say that? Well, I'd answer that question with a question. Why did Jesus die for our sins? Why did the righteous die for the unrighteous? First Peter 3.18 says it was so that he could bring us to God. Christ died, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that he could bring us to God. He could adopt us into God's family. We need forgiveness for our sins. We need justification and redemption and penal substitutionary atonement and all that stuff so that we can now experience the kingdom, life with God under his rule. And the breathtaking glory of this passage of Jesus instructing his disciples here is that he's saying, in me the kingdom is at hand. I am God. I am here. I have drawn near. And you can experience life with me. You can flourish under my rule. You don't have to be lost, orphaned, harassed, and helpless sheep. The mercy and grace of the cross is seen in some sense ahead of time, before Jesus died, because God sent Jesus in grace, in the flesh, to broken, rebellious, sinful people, proclaiming the reign and rule of God. And so we get to join Jesus in inviting people cut off and alienated from the God of the universe, the God, the only one who can satisfy their souls, and say that, hey, it's available. Life with him is available to us now. Look at verse 8. This is the next thing that he tells us to do, that he tells his disciples to do on mission. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Really, Jesus? Like, we're trying to wrap our heads around actually talking to non-Christians. And now you want us to, like, lay our hands on them and, and do, do miracles. Like, anybody else, like, want to option for the JV team or something? But this is just how our, our king and savior works. Like, he gives authority, he gives power to his apprentices to do stuff. Later we see him promise the Holy Spirit that we'll receive power from on high to do the things that he did, that apart from him we can do nothing. And suffice it to say that what Jesus is showing is that the expectations for his mission, the instructions that he gives for his missions are not based on or carried out in our own strength. Like, they're not based on, like, our capacity. They, they require dependency. They require us to need something beyond ourselves to, to, to do it. Jeff shared about his healing experience, and Scripture just gives the church plain instructions for doing healing. It's full of accounts of not just Jesus doing miracles, but his followers doing similar miraculous signs as they move towards people and their brokenness with power and compassion. The huge portion of Jesus' miracles, are, it's emphasized that he's moving towards people in compassion. There's an element of his miracles that are meant to 
validate his divinity, but you often, you see, you see him doing miracles in private or telling people not to tell him about it. He's not just like, kabam, I'm God because I did this thing. No, he takes a blind man by the hand and leads him out of the city and, and lays his hands on him privately to heal and restore his sight. He's, not, he's doing it out of love and compassion for broken people, not just to, to validate himself or you know, get Instagram followers or whatever. And so Jesus calls us to do the same thing, to go out to harass helpless people in power and compassion uh, with the power of God seeking to, to alleviate suffering. The third thing that they're supposed to do, I want to say this is my favorite, but like all these things are pretty great, is uh, respond to responses. The third thing he says to them is respond to the responses. Look at verse 11. Whatever town or village you enter, search for some worthy person there and stay at his house until you leave. As you enter the home, give it your greeting. If the home is deserving, let your peace rest on it. If it is not, let your peace return to you. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, shake the dust off your feet when you leave that home or town. I tell you the truth, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. I'm so encouraged by this uh, part of Jesus' mi mission, uh, though I have to confess I do not follow it very, very well. Uh, I struggle to live it out. Because uh, Jesus is saying, like, as you go on mission, uh, some people will accept it, and some people will not, and some people will reject it. Like, spoiler alert, not everybody's going to like you. Like, spoiler alert, some people are going to reject you. And he says, don't worry either way, because justice will be had in the end. There will be a day of reckoning, and everybody will answer for what they said about Jesus. Truth will win the day. And there's so much freedom in this as we consider mission for ourselves. We as disciples are responsible to go as we go, preach, to alleviate suffering, and then respond to the responses. If the disciples are rejected, then they shake it off. Like this is Taylor Swift evangelism. Just shake it off because haters are always going to hate. I mentioned Taylor Swift probably too much in sermons, I think. So sorry about that. And, and if they're... And if they're received, then they stay. They let their peace stay, and they do some more teaching before they move on. Jesus is saying, this is huge. This is something I struggle so badly to believe. It's not your job to manage people's responses. It's not your job to manage people's responses. Hallelujah. He said in John 10 that uh, I'm the true shepherd, and my sheep know my voice. If they're not my sheep, then they don't know my voice. So we're, we're called to just share the words of the shepherd and let, people, let the true sheep respond. Paul says it like this in 2 Corinthians 2. He says, Our lives are a Christ-like fragrance rising up to God, but this fragrance is perceived differently by those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To those who are perishing, we are a dreadful smell of death and doom. Anybody feel like that's anybody else? But to those who are being saved, we are a life-giving perfume. What gets me so jazzed about this is it means that we cannot fail. We can't fail. The results are not up to us. If we are going, if we are preaching, if we are serving people, we cannot fail. The only way to fail is to disobey. The only way to fail is to not go. If we obey Jesus, we have succeeded. Like I said, I confess, I don't always live this way. I feel take the responses personally or second-guess myself or wallow in what I said or didn't say. And 
Um, you know, and we, you can see we're in a season of revitalization. Things are cozy here, and you know, people have left, and th there's all that questioning of the responses. But we can uh, seek to be as faithful as we can and trust God that everything will be made clear in the end. That's it. Be faithful, be available, be teachable, and go and let God bring the results. Now to close, there's one little sentence in this passage <clears throat> that ties the whole thing together, that wraps up this entire picture of Jesus' mission. It's, at the, it's the second sentence of verse 8. Verse 8, part B. I'll just read the whole thing. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Whenever we are talking about the mission of God and obeying Jesus into life with him, we, we do stuff in obedience to Jesus. We always have to return to the wealth, the radical, extravagant grace that we have received, no merit of our own, in, in the gospel. In Christ, John says in chapter 1 uh, of his gospel, we, we have received grace upon grace. We've had the God of the universe look at our sin and rebellion, our wounds, and say, I love you, even to death on a cross. The gore of the execution of Jesus simultaneously shows us the, the breathtaking depth of our sin and rebellion and also the just staggering love that God has for us in his grace. And we see Jesus risen from the dead, raised to new life, uh, and, and in that resurrected life, grace is available to us. So we can experience life with God under his rule in the kingdom as beloved children. Our souls find the thing that they have been looking for all along. And out of that rest, out of uh, that freedom from guilt and shame, freedom uh, from the fear of other people's expectations or opinions of us, we can, we can move out. We can pass on what we've received to help and hapless, harassed and helpless sheep, passing on what we have freely been given. Let me pray.